Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Canadian Dental Association President Dr. Lynn Tompkins has some recommendations for the government as they roll out the National Dental Program. First Nations policy analyst Melissa Mbarki says, let Indigenous people prosper from oil and gas. Robert Half, Managing Director Kula Vasilopoulos, shares the priorities of working women from their latest survey. And former Director of Immigration Canada Andrew Griffith is disappointed by the proposal to take citizenship oaths privately online. So let's get started. Dentists across Canada could see up to 9 million new patients as a result of the government's new universal dental care program. But a new report from the Canadian Dental Association says new policies are also going to be needed. Here to talk more about it is the president of the Canadian Dental Association, Dr. Lynn Tompkins, joining us from Toronto this morning. Dr. Tompkins, Lynn, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Tompkins. Let's talk to, for a few moments. Bring us up to speed, if you will. We'll talk about the report in a second. Where are we right now this weekend in early March with respect to the rollout of the new dental care program from the Government of Canada? Well, I'd have to go back a year when there was an agreement between the Liberal government and the NDP uh, on the confidence and supply agreement. And right. part of that was a promise to bring in dental care. So on December 1st, uh, there was the launch of the Canada Dental Benefit. So that is a program aimed at children. Mm-hmm. And it's basically an application for the parents or the guardians to, you know, to take the child to the dentist, to have the funds to take the child to the dentist. So the next, this, um, this announcement of the Canada Dental benefit has given us, you know, it's a staged approach, so it's given us a bit of a chance to get into the conversation about the next part. And I must say that, you know, at the Canadian Dental Association, we we support level uh, efforts by all levels of government, actually, to enhance access to dental care, mm-hmm. and that will improve Canadians' oral health. So in the next phase of the program, the government has stated it plans to bring out coverage for those up to 18 persons with disabilities and seniors by the end of 2023. So Mm -hmm. this is what is being discussed right now. And you have prepared this report quite recently. You had some consultations with federal officials, including the Minister of Health and uh, all of your colleagues across the country. And and you talk about new policies being needed, uh, cautioning basically everyone that uh, it's not going to roll out without some new framework going on. So talk to us about what the Dental Association would like to see. Well, we did release our policy paper just this past week, and it does, I encourage everybody to go on to the Canadian Dental Association website and have a look at it. It is designed for the public, for parliamentarians, and for other stakeholders in the process. So we have uh, given some advice to government. We've made several recommendations, and one is uh, that we, we certainly expect that the delivery of most of the care will be through the private dental offices, and in in up with that, we are asking the government to develop an oral health uh, a worker kind of strategy so that we have enough uh, dental assistants, dental hygienists, and dental personnel to help us uh, treat the patients that are going to be coming in under this uh, program. Mm-hmm. So particularly in the area of dental assistants, uh, I have to say I'm very, very proud of, of dental office staff across the country during COVID. There was not a single case of transmission 
of COVID from patient to provider, provider to patient during the entire pandemic. That's interesting. That did not come, that did not come without, without a lot of effort on sure. the part of dental offices and dental office staff. So as frontline healthcare providers, they've been under considerable stress. So we do know that uh, we do need more dental assistance, and we would encourage uh, government to look at developing more educational programs, distance learning programs and any and uh, making people aware making young people aware that this is a wonderful career choice making new canadians aware that this is a wonderful career choice and a and a relatively short educational pathway to really what can be a very uh, enjoyable meaningful and uh, significant career in oral health care uh, dr Thompson, the pay, uh, on the website you, the uh, the story about your uh, report the bridging the financial gap in dental care building a sustainable and effectively federally funded program uh, the headline of this uh, story says canada must ensure federal dental care plan doesn't disrupt the current oral health system how could that happen well this is another area where we have uh, alerted government to the concerns regarding this because we know that uh, i mean 95 percent of dental care in canada is funded through the private sector right and more than 50% of Canadians receive coverage through employer-sponsored benefits. Mm-hmm. And up to two-thirds of Canadians are covered under some sort of provincial or territorial program. So we are cautioning the government that whatever program they bring out, that it not displace the current ecosystem of employer-sponsored benefits. We know that Canadians rely on those. They value those benefits. And uh, a sizable number of Canadians would not be able to visit the dentist without having their dental plan. So this is something that, uh, that we have been discussing. You, you mentioned that we have had good consultation with the Minister with Health Canada throughout this process, and we look forward to continuing that. Does the, uh, the pointing out the fact that so many of us rely on our employer benefits uh, to, to visit the dentist and so on, uh, do you sense or was there a sense that the government might try to disrupt the current system? Or are you just warning them that the, whatever they do must c- include what we already have? Uh, the government's been very clear from the beginning that the program, that, and especially with the Canada Dental Benefit, that is designed for persons who are not covered under another plan. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that is evidence that they have listened to our concerns. And so uh, we do look forward to continuing the discussion on how to bring a, a robust, well-designed, effective plan, whatever form they bring in, that is going to reach Canadians who need the dental care without affecting the, uh, the current system that, uh, where most Canadians have some sort of employer-sponsored health benefits. Have you noticed, and it's quite early on in the, in the whole rollout, but have you noticed across the country any uptick at all, Dr. Tompkins, in just patient attendance at dental offices? Because, well, now there's a provision where my, I may be able to afford this. Well, we are cautioning patients, actually. I mean, some people, we have heard that some are uh, postponing appointments because they think that a dental care program is quite imminent. Ah. And we are, we are reminding people, don't, don't cancel your dental appointments. Don't wait. Dental, um, you know, it's important to have an examination with your dentist so that any dental problems can be detected early because when they're detected early, they can be treated in a relatively straightforward way. The longer people wait, generally the more complicated the problem is, and then the more complicated the, uh, the treatment is to resolve the issue. So uh, we do know that up to 200,000 children so far 
um, have been, uh, you know, they've applied for, their parents or guardians have applied for the Canada Dental Benefit. Mm -hmm. Uh, That program potentially up to, I think, 900,000, almost a million children would be eligible for the program. So fascinating stuff. And by the way, the report is quite available, friends, at the Canadian Dental Association website. Just Google Canadian Dental Association and the report's right there on the homepage. Dr. Lynn Tompkins in Toronto, thanks so much for doing this today. It's an important topic and uh, no cancelling dental appointments. Uh, good message no, this morning, I, Lynn. And I, uh, I, I do want to say that this is really an exciting prospect. I'm thinking of all the millions of Canadians who are not currently accessing dental care right now because of the cost, and that when they are able to go to the dentist and achieve optimal oral health, they're going to be in better health overall and a better life. So it's quite quite an amazing uh, prospect that we are going to be able to help so many people with this program. Indeed it is. Dr. Tompkins, thanks so much for being with us this morning. We appreciate your time on a Sunday. Thank you very much. Here's a quote from an article written, written rather recently by our next guest. Quote, opportunities in the natural resource sector are a consideration for many indigenous communities. Many are contemplating becoming involved or have already become involved and are forging their own pathways with industry. Poverty is no longer an option. Managing our resources and revenues will be our way to resolving some of the issues that have kept us locked in despair. This part of an article in the National post a couple of days ago uh, entitled Let Indigenous People Prosper from Oil and Gas. The author of the piece, Melissa Embarkey from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Melissa joining us again this morning from Edmonton. Good morning, Melissa. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on your show, and I'm happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Melissa. Now, you, uh, in the uh, article you wrote in the Post a few days ago, uh, you point to yourself as as a good example of all of this, and the fact that you, uh, one of your first jobs in the real working world was in the petro sector, correct? That is correct. Um, I come from a small, poverty-stricken community. We have no jobs. Uh, There are no jobs in the foreseeable future, And after I finished my studies, I was contemplating on what I wanted to do because where am I going to move? I can't move back to my community Mm -hmm. because there's nothing there. Yeah. So the oil and gas sector, um, I actually became involved in a pretty big project and it was my introduction into this um, into the sector. And it provided me a career for the last 15 years. In the last five or so years, I've seen Indigenous communities become more involved in the natural resource sector. And it's not just oil and gas, it's mining, it's pipelines. We've seen some major investments and a lot of these communities have thrived because of it. And from the outside looking in, however, uh, here in BC, of course, as you know, next door, uh, the the petro sector is most heavily populated by LNG projects underway in the mega billions. But I'm going back to your article, Melissa, for for your comment. Another false narrative is that Indigenous people have to choose between the oil and gas sector and land rights. When engagement and partnership building are initiated with Indigenous communities, solutions are tangible and workable. We can move forward with Indigenous while restoring treaty rights. That is a a perspective that you provide in your article that isn't necessarily duplicated in the field, is it? That is correct, Um, because our voices aren't the loudest out there. 
those who are the loudest are the protesters against this industry. Mm-hmm. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, they have an opportunity to learn about this sector. And LNG is one of the cleanest uh, forms of energy out there. It's replacing coal not only in Canada, but worldwide as well. So that's a consideration. Um, you know, when, when you're out there sort of going against an industry, get a little bit more information about it. Um, you know, interact with the communities, find out, you know, go and talk to a diverse group of people, not just the ones who are opposing it. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the economic benefits that this will bring to communities. Ellis Ross, um, I actually just seen him at a conference a couple weeks ago, and he said his community was one of the poorest in Canada. And they, in the last seven years, have gone from being the poorest to not being dependent on the government. Mm. And I think stories like this need to be shared, not only in B.C., but across this country, because this is really important. You know, poverty is one of the biggest issues that we face today. And if we're not addressing it, these issues are going to get worse. And, you know, we're having a tough enough time dealing with it right now. I can't imagine dealing with it tenfold in the future. And we need to start addressing this today and not tomorrow. Help us understand, Melissa, if you can at all, uh, and again, the confusion from the outside looking in, the the distinction between elected uh, officials in Indian bands or nations and hereditary officials uh, who seem in many cases to be at direct conflict with each other. And, And you're sitting on the outside going, geez, who do I cheer for here? I think you cheer for the entire community, you know, that they have to be able to come together. If they don't come together and they don't start making decisions for their entire entire community, not just themselves, they are going to stay in that same place for a very long time. And that's not a very good place to be. So what I would do is not choose sides and just, you know, get them to communicate with each other because that is what's lacking. And if they start talking to each other, they can start coming up with solutions. Well, maybe they didn't want to do things this way mm-hmm. uh, with the alternative, you know, start talking about the alternative, start talking about tangible solutions, and maybe they will get somewhere. But I come from a small community and it is not a good place to be when you're divided. So I would encourage them to talk to each other. And, you know, forge those relationships because that's really what's going to move their communities forward. Melissa, is there a role for government in all of this or is government best advised to stay the heck out of the way and let uh, people work things out for themselves? It would be easy to say just don't get involved. But if you are going to be involved in this dispute or in this inner conflict, then listen to both sides and talk to both sides. Don't choose one over the other because that's just going to create an even bigger mess. And they probably know this going in and do it deliberately anyways, but that's not going to get this community very far. And I would rather resolve these issues within as opposed to taking it out into the public. Um, You know, being from an Indigenous community, it's easier to resolve issues than it is to have people choose sides. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you get there, the damage is irreparable, or if you do repair it, it takes years. Melissa, you're in in Edmonton, and of course the province of Alberta, very much in the crosshairs of the government of Canada with respect to oil, particularly, and gas. Uh, And and we're talking about now the transition plan, which apparently is at a plan-to-have-a-plan stage. Not a lot of details available, but there is one, assuming uh, somebody's working on one. Uh, How does it shake out, as you understand it now, for Indigenous people? Well, it's going to cut jobs. 
I mean, the more you cut this industry, the more jobs you're going to be removing. And this not only impacts Canadians, but it impacts Indigenous communities who, for the first time in, you know, decades, are becoming economically self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And when you start taking this away, you become more dependent on the government. And that's not what we want. We want to come up with solutions. And the way the plan sits right now, it's it's not a solution. They don't have a transition plan. It's, it's just saying the oil and gas sector is bad and we're going to remove it. Well, that's not a solution. Mm-hmm. You know, go go back to the table, look at solutions like carbon tech, look at these zero emission hubs that are starting up, look at Pathway Alliance, who is looking to work with the oil sands and, you know, be able to capture carbon and store it. There are so many solutions out there that aren't even on the table right now. And they need to start talking about this because cutting an industry that we rely on is not a, it's not a solution to climate change. Interesting stuff. Melissa, great to have you back with us this morning. Your background in the petrol sector shows uh, brilliantly in this article you wrote in the National Post. And we do appreciate your taking a few extra minutes to flesh it out with us on the radio in Vancouver. Good to have you back. Thanks. You're welcome. Ahead of International Women's Day, which is coming up this Wednesday, the folks at Robert Half have released a survey of Canadian workers focusing on the priorities of working Canadian women. Here to talk about their survey from Robert Half, Senior Managing Director Kula Vasilopoulos. Kula, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Well, it's great to have you with us. And of course, your your timing is impeccable with International Women's Day just a matter of a couple of days away. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the motivation behind the research. Or is this an annual event, Kula? Yeah, you know, I think we, we tend to do surveys on an annual event. But as we come up to, you know, different times that are important to individuals in their career, that's when we, um, you know, want to hear from what people are looking for. And that's exactly what this survey pointed out. Um, ultimately what the priorities were for female professionals. And, and uh, I would imagine some of it would have had to deal with the uh, the duration and perhaps the after effects of working through a pandemic. Talk to us about what you found uh, in terms of attitudes and reactions to that experience. Yeah, so, you know, I think what our survey really focused on was what was um, important or what the priorities were. And, you know, that certainly could have been impacted um, and likely was through, you know, the pandemic that we all experienced. What we found through the survey was that, you know, 74% of females are wanting their salary to increase by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, And it ultimately was one of the main reasons that female professionals are, you know, really considering a a job. Um, They're looking for better compensation. Interesting. Now, uh, was there there a perceptible desire to move on from a lot of the people that you were talking to? You know, I, I think ultimately, if they can identify an opportunity that is going to sort of fit in these priorities. One of them was financial compensation. The other one was more flexibility. Uh, You know, a third of individuals were seeking greater flexibility to choose when and where they work. And that you can expect was likely very much driven through the experience of the pandemic. Uh, And then more than 32% were wanting a promotion. So career progression uh, is very, very important to them. And so what we find is that if individuals can find those types of opportunities, yep, they're willing to move on. 
Interesting. So as an employment agency, essentially, you counsel your clients who are hiring people, uh, and uh, they're very much looking forward to the information that you uh, find in these surveys. So what what's the word to employer clients about flexibility? Yeah, great, great question. And, you know, we continue to communicate to employers that it's so important to support and retain their female talent by providing really competitive pay, flexible work options, and career growth opportunities. Um, So ensuring that we're doing our best to help educate really the marketplace around what that looks like for females. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, pandemic-driven experience of being in our back pocket now. A lot of people have had had a significant change in terms of their work environments. Uh, In in, in many cases, home is the work environment. What about a desire to maintain uh, that balance? Uh, A lot of people seem to be heading towards a hybrid compromise solution, maybe two days in the shop, three days at home, or vice versa. Are you sensing that to be at play largely? Yes, absolutely. You know, there there continues to be a bit of a delta between maybe what employers are hoping and would like and what employees um, are really demanding. Uh, and what we are seeing is definitely a shift to hybrid. What's really important to employees is that they have the ability to have flexibility. And so flexibility can be about where you work. It can also be about when you work. Uh, And so that's very important. So as an employer, I think really understanding what the motivators are, what the drivers are for your employees so that you can create, you know, a win-win situation where you're able to provide the employees what uh, is important to them and also be able to retain great talent because the, the war for talent is, you know, continues to be very, very fierce. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about compensation, Kula, if we can, please, because, of course, mm-hmm. uh, I guess one of the big questions is how close or how, or how much close has the gap in terms of pay between males and females doing the same job in the workplace? Has that improved at all? Has pandemic changed anything in that regard? You know, I don't really have any data uh, specific to that, but what I can certainly say is the the level of awareness around, you know, wage equity uh, has certainly increased over the last several years. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I would really believe that employers and organizations who recognize um, that, you know, pay equity uh, is a priority for them will really win uh, when it comes to be able to, you know, not only attract great talent, but to retain the talent that they have. Well, it's such an investment to bring a person on board. It, it can cost up to from six to 12 months in terms of productivity. And so when you make that investment, particularly at the executive or management level, you, you, you really are hoping for a long-term solution, aren't you? A hundred percent. And that, you know that's where it becomes so critical that companies or employers really understand what's important, what the priorities are for their people, whether it's their existing employee base or from a from an attraction standpoint. So understanding what's happening in the marketplace, talking to organizations like ourselves that really, you know, are, are communicating with potential employees every day, uh, will really help you be able to be equipped to, you know, have at least 
uh, a little bit of an advantage on the war for talent. I'm, I'm curious about productivity concerns, if you don't mind for a moment, Kula. And this uh, this talks uh, again to employers as well as employees, because there are still employers out there who are saying that this the, the work from home, the not at the shop uh, approach is detrimental to productivity. Is that a common attitude or is it now becoming sort of peripheral? Yeah, you know, I would say it's probably a little bit more peripheral. It really is dependent on the organization. You know, what we're hearing from employers is what's important about having individuals, you know, whether it's in office or together, is just that sense of connection Mm -hmm. um, tied to the culture, tied to collaboration. Um, And so I think we all learned through the pandemic that you know, people could continue to be very productive irrespective of where they were working. The one big miss that we had was just being physically together. How much time that is, how often that is, I think ultimately is very dependent on the organization and the industry that they're in. Interesting stuff. Let's talk a little bit about STEM, if we can, because it's been a priority for a lot of uh, certainly women's groups, as well as some employer groups. Where uh, did you, uh, in the process of surveying Canadian professional women, talk about STEM at all? No, we didn't really get into uh, into that. You know, what we really focused on was what their priorities were and what was important to them. Uh, and, you know, I have seen some data around, you know, I think the return to women from the workforce or into the workforce again, you know, as the pandemic has shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, women uh, and female employees were certainly impacted in the workforce through the pandemic. So it's, you know, it's really positive to see um, that that, you know, trend uh, is continuing. And so, you know, that's been very, very positive. But I think what employee female professionals are looking for really is very similar to all professionals. They want to be able to have um, great work-life balance. They want to have, you know, camaraderie with their coworkers. They want to receive recognition for their contributions and do meaningful work and be compensated fairly and appropriately for that. Interesting stuff. Very interesting work. How many people did you talk to in the process of putting this data together? Yeah, for this particular survey, we spoke to 1,100 Canadian professionals. Okay, and so that's a good cross-section. And uh, so priority number one is uh, acceptance. Uh, is that a, is a poor way of expressing it? Yeah, I think so. You know, you know they, they want to be, um, they just want to be able to receive recognition for their contribution mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, ultimately have greater flexibility um, to choose again where and when they work. Uh, I don't really think that differs much really from anybody in the workforce who's experienced the pandemic Mm -hmm. Uh, and then ultimately want to be able to have, you know, some opportunity for career progression. So, yes, being accepted, um, you know, being able to be heard, uh, you know, feeling really empowered to voice their career um, priorities. That was really important. Interesting stuff. Great survey. And thanks ever so much for taking a few moments on a Sunday morning, no less, Kula, for, for, to share some of the findings that uh, Robert Half has discovered in, in the past few weeks. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. 
Starting as soon as June, new Canadian citizens may have the option of taking the citizenship on the oath on their own without a citizenship judge present. There are many on the sidelines who say this change cheapens the citizenship process. One of those people is a former director general at the Immigration Department, now an Environics Institute fellow. Andrew Griffiths is one of those critics. Mr. Griffiths joins us this morning from Geneva. Andrew Griffiths, good morning and welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Andrew. Tell us a little bit about your take on the change, and why do you think the change was made in the first place? Well, reading through the government documents, it's clear that it's less about client service or citizenship service and more about saving money. Mm. Quite frankly, removing the oath would allow fewer citizenship judges, fewer ceremonies, whether physical or virtual, and that's very clear when they talk about the benefits and costs of the of the change. Um, it's sometimes dressed up in terms of efficiency and inclusion, but ultimately, when I go through the documents in detail, it's very clearly that it's driven more by cost considerations, and rather than overly so, and not considering the impact in terms of what it means for people who are becoming Canadian citizens, becoming part of the Canadian family, so to speak. It's interesting that, that that it would be some kind of cost efficiency finding. And I say this only because, Andrew, a, a citizenship court judge appointment is considered to be a plum primo appointment in terms of patronage for party loyalists and stalwarts. And it has been for decades. So why would the party in power uh, uh, not continue such practice? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't think they even really considered that impact as much. Um, and if you look at the number of appointments that governments can make, the citizenship judges are basically a drop in the bucket. Sure. So it probably doesn't make that much difference. Um, I'm more concerned really about it. What is the impact um, in terms of getting your citizenship with a click, so to speak, versus actually sort of sharing a moment with your friends, family, and other new Canadians. Indeed, we had Daniel Bernhard, the CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship on the program. In fact, at this time, a week ago, Andrew, and he was talking about a slightly different take on it, but he's already been quoted as being in the same side of the of, of the argument as yourself, because he, he says it's a shame, and it cheapens the significance of becoming a Canadian citizen. Do you think it cheapens the process as well? Yes, I, I do. Um, I don't know whether you've had the uh, opportunity to attend a citizenship ceremony, but every time that I go, and whether it's because uh, a friend or a family member is becoming a citizen, or when I actually had to go because it was part of my my job, it's a very emotional moment Indeed. for most of the people who attend. Yes. You know, they really, it really means something to them because for many people, they've come from environments where they don't have that kind of personal security and has made a big effort to come to Canada, establish themselves. And finally, they're sort of getting that sort of, you know, final quote stamp of approval uh, of being part of Canadian society. So I think it's a big deal. And I think you, I, I think Danielle and Disclosure, I, I exchange a lot of information with him. Um, it's correct that it does actually uh, cheapen the value of citizenship. And, uh, 
the former governor general, Adrian Clarkson, has made the same point. Former minister of immigration, Sergio Marquis, has made the same mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've been I've had the great fortune and privilege, actually, Andrew, of attending. Uh, I've never have worked for the government. I've just been a, a voter and a taxpayer. But I've had the good fortune to attend a number of citizenship ceremonies over the years. Uh, J- July 1st citizenship uh, ceremonies being particularly poignant. But you're quite right. They're incredibly emotional moments, aren't they? They are. And, you know, this is one of the few times that the federal government really connects with people in a very significant and very personal way. It's not transactional, like getting a, a, a EI or getting a driver's license or getting you know, a health card or mm-hmm. something like that. It's very personal. So why would a government basically want to remove that just to really largely save some money? Well, it's a very good question. Now, this is this is not yet a done deal, as I understand it, Andrew. There's there's a public feedback consultation progress uh, process rather underway right now. But do you get the sense, Andrew, that it is in fact a done deal, and the 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 the, the feedback segment is strictly for optics? Um, it's a good question. I mean, in one sense, when it goes this route, the expectation is they'll get some comments. Um, but they're free, of course, to ignore the comments. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm hoping um, is that through programs such as yours, through the you know, various people who have commented on the media about how this is a bad uh, decision, um, that there'll be enough input saying, wait a minute, you guys should rethink this and, and not proceed with that. So that's my hope. Um, and you know, when I sort of look at some of the comments that I see on other commentary, I don't find very many people in support of this change. Agreed. So uh, is there even a remote possibility a rethink could be in the works? Well, it's not over. (laughs) I'm I'm asking a former civil servant, a person who understands the machinery of government better than all the rest of us put together. So it's a good question for you, Andrew. Well, it is a good question. I mean, I have my days where I'm as cynical as the rest of us, right? We all do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I've been making efforts to talk to other people, to appear on programs like this. Uh, I, the Inter- Institute for Canadian Citizenship is making efforts. Other people are making efforts. And I, what I always think is that it's important to provide the feedback um, both through means such as this, as well as through the formal process, because maybe if enough people are opposed to this, and maybe if there's enough public uh, awareness and public controversy, uh, maybe the government will change its mind. I mean, governments don't like to change their mind, but when the reality starts to intrude that it's not a winner politically, sometimes they... Uh, come to their senses, so to speak. Mm, Nothing like an election a year or less away to uh, sharpen those senses as well. This whole thing is pandemic driven, though, because we were required over the last uh, couple of years to change the way we do everything, especially from a federal government level. uh, We had to change the entire citizenship process, which became remote. So now it's possible to become a Canadian citizen and never actually appear in front of anyone. And and that's because uh, to expedite the process and just to keep the wheels turning. Is, but the pandemic is essentially behind us, and yet they're still using a pandemic-driven rationale to, uh, to back up or support this change. I don't think it's uh, – I think the optics are poor here. Well, I've got, a sort of, I've got a piece coming out that basically says 
uh, I think the government should revisit the remote or the virtual ceremonies or use them more sparingly because right now it was about, you know, virtually all of them in the past two years have been remote and call me old fashioned, but I think the in-person events are, have much more meaning and much more power than the uh, remote ceremonies. Though I understand from others who attended the remote ceremonies that they also find them moving. So, you know, ideally go back to the in-person, but above all, don't even eliminate the ceremony itself. And what if, I don't suppose they're allowed to do much, as the judiciary in this country isn't particularly relied upon for commentary, but have you heard anything from citizenship court judges in all of this? You know a lot of them. I used to know a lot of them. I've, I've lost touch with a number of them, and, and, and none of them has reached out to me to express their, uh, their concerns. I really don't know what their views are. I suspect that given that most of them really believe in the work they do and believe in the connection that it gives new Canadians to Canadian society. But I would suspect that most would be uncomfortable with this decision, you know, apart from, you know, less jobs or something like that. And mm-hmm. I think in a more fundamental sense, they would be opposed to that. And I'm not even sure within the immigration department that everybody's in favor of this decision. Interesting stuff. We appreciate your joining us uh, from Geneva, Switzerland, no less this morning, Mr. Griffith. Uh, It's a terribly important topic, and cheapening citizenship is not a desirable thing for anyone in Canada, I shouldn't think. Thanks, Andrew, very much. Well, thanks very much for having me and raising the issues. It's really important. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.